courtesy of Bow. Sports.com, Stitcher.com, iTunes. You subscribe to this lovely, sexy, and wonderful podcast for free. Tune in media for your mobile devices, Google Play Podcasts, and we are also on Spotify. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the show that we so lovingly call Bow on Bulls. The show totally, utterly, and foreverly dedicated to the Chicago Bulls and NBA talk. I am Big Dad. How you feel, bro? Like, that was a great intro. That was like one of your best all year. Like, this really? Blow it it's man. You know, when you say it a thousand times, <laughs> you don't forget these things. That's just really how it happens, man. Straight up. But, man, how you feel, though? Saturday's good? You all right? Saturday's good. Good weather outside. It's hoodie weather, man. Your favorite so, time? Yeah. So, everyone rocking hoodies. Yeah. Um. Yeah, man, that's good. Went to a Pete's Produce, put the mats in again. Boozy. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually bought a pre-made dinner. Well, they made some like Greek, Greek chicken wings. Uh-huh. And I, every time I go there, I look at it. I said, don't look at it, look at it. This time, yeah. I'm like, all right, let me, let me look at these wings. I'm telling right. you, you're going to be sitting in there at eating at some point in time. I'm telling you what's going to happen. <laughs> I told you this going to happen, bro. And I'm very excited because I'm going to make fun of you for like 15 minutes. It's going to be a great time. That's up my diet. <laughs> I bought ready. sushi again. I never get sushi. I bought some sushi again. So You eat sushi out of a produce? Like that's Dude, they, get, they make it. They make it right there, fresh. If you want, it's like right there. They wrap it up. You. They make it right there. See, already. Look at you. <laughs> already, man. Yeah. 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 All right. All right, man. I'm not gonna make too much fun of you on yet. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> it's coming, man. But we got a special guest with us today, man. Uh, I'm very excited to have this guest on with us. Uh, as you know, Del, I I read newspapers often, especially yes. the sports section, especially when I was riding the train. Um, <laughs> It's all I read. It was the Sun Times in the morning, and it was the Tribune in the evening. That's that's how I got down. But this this guy on this show today, like you can't think of Chicago sports writing without his name either being the first or second name that comes into your head. Um, definitely polarizing. There are many people that hate him. <laughs> many people that <laughs> like him. Uh, definitely opinionated, but definitely respected. And I'm honored to have him on the show. And we are thankful he came on our show. Ladies and gentlemen, sports writer for the Chicago Sun-Times, the man, Joe Cowley. How are you, sir? Fellas, how you guys doing? Thanks for having me, man. Man, thanks for being on. First of all, can we address the hat that you have, this Alabama hat? Are you an Alabama <laughs> fan here? Oh, no, I just, yeah, I like, yeah, I got all, I got all kind of hats. I got all kind of, yeah. Me and you going to be I cool, coach, I coach, uh, I coach a lot, of, a lot of football for a lot of years, so. Oh, really? I got all, yeah, yeah, I got two boys that are football players and, um so yeah a lot of coaching a lot of uh a lot of visor hats a lot of throwing the visor down these come <laughs> these come off a lot easier than caps so uh um yeah so just I, i've got all kind of teams that i like how, how angry have you gotten before on the sideline um like kicked out of a game angry or like my like uh, it's funny because a lot of the kids that i have for baseball and football they're always like we like coach joe for baseball because baseball is just it's just naturally just it's just mellow if you're angry during a baseball game you gotta you got some issues yeah. <laughs> um football is is different i mean that's a that's a foxhole that's a um that's i'd say probably i coached my oldest in basketball a long time ago um then he just turned just to football um the angriest I probably got was basketball. I got thrown out of a basketball game, but I, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, the referee, I mean, I don't get into it with referees. A lot of these dudes are like, you know, 16, 18 year old kids right. getting paid, you know, 15, 20 bucks a game. I, I, they don't need some old man with one foot in the grave getting on them. Come on, man. I mean, just, you know, <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty respectful of that position and that shirt and what these kids are just trying to do. They're just trying to make some money, man. Yeah, but bad calls oh, so. are bad calls, Joe. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you're gonna have bad calls. I was always taught you gotta you gotta play better than the referees. You can't mm. let them determine stuff. So you know that's always what I tell my kids. We, we don't get caught up in rough calls and and stuff like that. You just you gotta play better than them. That's it. So Joe, man. So all these. What, what's your favorite sport to coach, though? Oh, football. It's not even football? close. It's football, and that's how you know. And and I know it's funny because that's how the whole. Uh, and some people have kind of tied it together. My oldest son was on an undefeated team that the Gophers invited down because we're, we're up, I'm up here in Minnesota half the time, Chicago half the time, to uh, Gopher Stadium to play an all-star team from St. Paul. And at that time, that's how I met Jalen Suggs. He was the quarterback of the all-star team from St. Paul. And, um, 
and so that's my first introduction to him. And then a couple guys on the team became close with him and um, went on a couple of his recruiting trips with him and stuff like that. So that's, you know, that's how people have kind of linked that together on Twitter. I saw some people are like, Oh, that's because your son played with him. No, he against him in a game, but that's how I was kind of introduced to Jalen Suggs back when he was in like seventh, eighth grade. So, um, you know, and, and just kind of learned what he's about and know have got to learn, you know, just, the people around him, what they say about him and what this kid's made of. Mm. So what, what did, because that kind of leads into my first question I kind of had for you was, when did you know that sports writing was it for you? Like, this is what you wanted to do. When did that journey kind of begin for you? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think probably, you know, but growing up in Cleveland football, I was a football and a wrestler. Mm. Um, and, you know, those are two big sports, obviously in Ohio and Cleveland, Northeast Ohio. Um, and I knew I was, you know, could I have gone and wrestled a division three? Yeah, but that just wasn't, it just wasn't the long-term thing. Um, but I wanted to stay in that game and kind of tell the story of just how beautiful this thing was growing up, how important it was to me. So it probably came from a selfish place at first. So I went to Kent state and started taking up journalism and, um, it kind of just all kind of just snowballed from there. Started off at the bottom, like I think people should, um, covering preps, and uh, turned that into uh, uh, Ohio, covering Ohio State for a couple of years, football and basketball. And then I wanted to get to a bigger market. Um, I just thought Cleveland was was too small of a market. I wanted a bigger market. I saw opening at the Daily Southtown um, for a Cubs job. I applied, didn't hear anything for months, figured I didn't get it. And then they called me and said, Hey, you know, it was like 300, some people applied. We brought it to the final 10. You're one of the guys We want to fly you out. And, mm-hmm. um, so they flew me out and, uh, nailed the job. And then I switched to the white Sox a couple months later. If people remember, uh, at the Southtown, uh, TJ Quinn, obviously now at ESPN used mm-hmm. to be the white Sox writer. He was always trying to get back to the East coast. He's an East coast guy. He got a job in New Jersey covering the Mets. So they asked me if I wanted to switch to the White Sox. And, I, you know, obviously coming from Cleveland, American League City, I'd rather have been there. That way I could go see mom and dad and, um, you know, I'm Italian. So, you know, you, you got a close-knit family and being away from them for the first time. So that gave me an opportunity to go back to Cleveland and, and see them. So um, that was kind of the genesis of the whole thing. But I will say this. The one thing I always respect about the Daily Southtown, when they hired me, their mentality was – you're competing. You're not a small paper. We're competing with the sun times and the trip, which fit my mentality. Perfect. And so I just kind of just came in, just, you know, going at people going at the beat hard. Mm. And then, uh, the sun times took notice. And, and so I've been at the sun times since 2006, right after the world series year for the white Sox. Mm-hmm. So why, why Chicago though? Why, why, why specifically did you want to do it in Chicago? Cause it's a big boy market. I mean, you know, the bottom line is you, you know, to me, it's number two to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, people argue L.A. I think L.A. is more of a laid back, not not, you know, not as uh, hungry as the as, you know, and, and from being from the outside. I'm like that. That's where I want to get. I want that big market. I want to be on that big stage. And so, yeah. um, you know, no slap at Cleveland, but it just was too small town mentality for me. Yeah. And so um, that was the fight to get to a big market. Did it still was it was it's still because, you know, you still kind of wanted that connection close to home. Like, like you said, like New York yeah, is I mean, up there too. You could have yeah, definitely Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you get in, I could get in the car and drive to Cleveland five mm-hmm. hours from Chicago and, yeah. and that's always nice. And so, um, and you know, I mean, look, I came in at the end of 97. So that's, that's the, the Bulls dynasty was, was winding down, but was still there. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank Thomas was a, was a white sock and, and being in Cleveland, you had this, you know, I didn't know Frank at the time when I was in Cleveland, didn't know what he was about, but the perception of him on the outside was you had this man, the superstar that was um, bigger than life. And uh, I was like, yeah, that's the kind of, I want to cover, you know, Cleveland. Yeah. They had some nice things at the time by Erica and Tommy and Lofton. And, mm-hmm. but it just, it just felt Clevelandy. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I understand. <laughs> you wanted to be on that covering that South side team with this, the big hurt. And then Albert went there. And, and, mm-hmm. and so, um, to me, it was just kind of a match made in heaven. And then the, then the Sun Times was always a match made in heaven because there was something blue collar. There was something tough about the Sun Times. There was something um, 
where opinions mattered at the Sun Times. Mm-hmm. You weren't cookie cutter. You weren't having to bow down to your columnists and stuff like that. And so I always thought that was a great fit too. So look, the, when you're in Cleveland and you're covering preps for a weekly and busting your ass for free, um, covering up stuff that other guys didn't want to cover because you're trying to get your name out there. And I did a, a NBA draft guide back in the day that, that, that probably 20 people bought, but I didn't care. And, you know, cause you just got to write, you got to work, you got to get your craft, you got to get your voice out there. And Chicago and working for the sun times, that was Mount Everest to me. Mm-hmm. So for me to have climbed that, and reach that, I couldn't have asked for anything more from this career. Um, that's frankly winding down. I mean, you know, I mean, we're, we're in the, we're in the, you know, the back nine of this thing for me, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't want to be a 75 year old dude doing this. That's not, you know, I got other passions and other things I like. So, um, but you know, I, I, I can, couldn't have asked for a better career path or, or, or what I dreamed of coming true. And so, you know, and that way you're blessed. Yeah, I was gonna mention because you said you just said you you hit Mount Everest, but you kind of like kind of quickly uh, passed by like why you wanted to write it. So like, could he like it seemed like a guy to me that really had a focus and really wanted to put an imprint in the industry. Do you think you accomplished that? Do you think you uh, you know? Uh, uh, yeah, I yeah, I know what you're saying. I don't know what my here, here's the thing, and the thing that kind of pisses me off um, at times, and and. I think probably I got the first taste of that when you had to deal with a guy like Jay Mariotti was probably one of the worst human beings I ever had to deal with. There were people, there's people, and there's still people in this profession that think what we do is brain surgery or curing cancer. And it's not, our asses are all replaceable easily. When I'm gone, there's someone's going to step in and you might not like his style immediately. Oh, I like how Joe covered the white Sox or Joe covered the bulls, but, but eventually I, I I just don't think I made a, anybody really makes a big enough imprint that we're not replaceable in this business. Mm-hmm. We're all replaceable and you have to respect that and you have to understand that. Um, so, you know, I, 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 there's guys in this business that to me think they're larger than life and bigger than life. And n- none of us are, I mean, and so, um, you know, getting back to why I did this when I was at Kent state or when I was growing up in Cleveland, I saw how people wrote for the Cleveland plain dealer. That was the big paper at the time. And I just thought I could do a better job. And so the way to do that, the proper way to do that is go after their title, go after their belt, put them in the ring and match up skills and see who's better. And if you can get their job or get their spot, and kind of keep working your way up. That's how you know you're doing better than them. So, um, and I don't think that's an old school mentality. People want to probably paint that as, oh, that's an old school mentality. To me, that's the proper mentality. You know, pay your respect to them, but go after their ass. You know what I mean? And, 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 and do it in a respectful manner. But if you feel like you're better and have more talent and bring more passion to this job, go after it. And that's what I did. I went after it. I remember the first time my dad still brings it up. He's like, he's like, so you want to go to, I was going to go to Ohio state first. I was accepted there. Then the last minute I found out Kent state's program was better. So I'm like, I'd rather go to their journalism program is better. So I'm like, let me sit out this semester and I'm going to transfer and and go to Kent. And I remember my pops is like, "Uh, you want to go into journalism? I'm like, yeah. I mean, you know, he's like, you know, I mean, he looked at the numbers. I mean, you just, it didn't for the most part, the average person doesn't make money in journalism. Um, and for the most part, it's hard to make it to a big market. Mm-hmm. So um, he still brings that up that he says, I never understood because I wasn't doubting you. He just, I never understood the lengths and the passion you had to, to do this the right way and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, that's, and I'm Chris and I've always told Chris, if, if you'll do it for free, that means you love it. And what, I kind of want to know where that love kind of developed for you uh, to be in writing. I know where it kind of developed in right, sports, right. but where Here, did it come from writing? Here's when I, here's when I knew um, not only that I could make it, but that I, I, it's something just kind of went into the soul where it's like, this is what you got to do. So I'm at, at Kent State, 
and we all do like, you know, I was covering the football team. I was covering the, the basketball team, um, enjoyed it, liked it, but I wanted kind of something bigger. I'm like, ah, I got to do something bigger. I got to do something bigger. So on my own, you know, I was obsessed with that old Reebok commercial with Lamar Money Monday. I don't know if you guys remember it. You know, he shoot from 35 and everybody would yell yeah. layup. And then I'm like, all right, so this cat really exists. And I'm like, you know, I, I was talking to some people and I'm like, you know, why, why aren't dudes like, why don't dudes like that make it? What, what, what goes, and now I'm a college guy too, by the way, mm-hmm. what goes astray where, where you hear Isaiah Thomas say back when he was in Chicago, Lamar Mundane was picked before him on the playground games. Mm. And this is Isaiah freaking Thomas. So, so I'm like, all right, I'm going to find these dudes. So I start just tracking guys down. Ralph, the rocket Walker, a legend from uh, Los Angeles, Lamar Mundane found him. Um, I talked to Adrian Autry who was at Syracuse at the time, but he grew up in the green cages in New York. And, and so I did this big, huge project where all these playground legends and I talked to him about, what went wrong? Why aren't they in that league? If they had the talent, what went wrong? And they were great. They all had their own story. And that's when I kind of realized there's more to this than just saying, this is the score of the game. This is why a team won or lost. There, there's, there's, there's a, a passion. There's, a, there, there's something bigger. So I wrote this big story and I didn't think anything of it. Uh, I did it out of love mm-hmm. and a professor that I didn't even know put it into a, a, a contest and I ended up finishing first in the country in the William Randolph Hearst Award and beat two kids from Northwestern. And they flew me out to San Francisco with, you know, the other winners in the different categories. And that's when I kind of knew that I wrote this as a passion piece, but this could be something bigger. If I have this passion to go on my own and just do something like this and enjoy it like I did, that this is something you can do for your life and wake up every day and feel like it's not a job. Cause my dad, look, my dad was, my dad was a hardworking dude. He, he was a, he was a third degree black belt who taught karate on the side for extra money. But he was one of those original dudes that were going up on the big buildings on scaffolding and painting the big sides of advertising on buildings, you know, before they were all computer generated and stuff like that. And so, you know, he was a, a blue collar dude and, and I, I didn't want to do that stuff. I, I respected that stuff. Cause a lot of people in my family were blue collar. But um, I wanted to do something where I woke up every day and enjoyed doing it. And so that when when that sto- when I finished that story, saw the results of that story, and and the enjoyment I had writing that story, um, that's when I was kind of that. Then you then you drank that juice and you want more. You know what I mean? And so that's when the chase kind of really began. And I'm like, all right, I I picked the right major. Now let's go after this thing. Is that kind of where your mentality came from? Uh, your dad of uh, these conquering these mountains, going after the big dog, this kind of David versus Goliath kind of thing. Like you talked about the Daily Southtown and how right. they wanted to go up against these bigger papers and that fit your mentality. Is that kind of where it came from? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of always had that. You know, my first job was at, at a weekly. And usually when you're at a weekly, you die at a weekly. It's just, it's, you know, it's just back then, it's hard to get out of a weekly. But what I noticed at that time was, Cleveland basketball was kind of coming on the scene and the plain dealer and our newspaper, some newspapers, we were missing out because dudes were afraid to go to some of these games. They didn't mm. want to go down to John Hay high school and watch Ruben Patterson mm. because that's not a place where a white writer wants to go. And they didn't want to go cover Cleveland Heights versus Shaw on, on a Friday night. The first time they were going to play it at night in 20 years and it turned into a riot. They didn't want to go do that. I did. And so that's why I was like, all right, I'm going to take your title because you're missing out. So I got to go cover the Ruben Patterson's when he was at John Hay and James Posey and Damon Stringer when he was at Cleveland Heights, who ended up going to Ohio State and Melvin Levitt at Villa Angel St. Joe's who went to Cincinnati <clears throat> and I, uh, Jerome Doc Taylor, who eventually went to DePaul for a year. Ricardo Crumble went to DePaul for a year. I was covering all these dudes and I was the only one. And so, um, that my mentality was if, if you're going to leave that belt empty, I'm going to take it. And so, you know, I started off as low as you can get doing preps and taking phone calls of little league scores, but I always wanted to um, chase bigger things. And, and to do that, you have to go places and do things that other people are uncomfortable doing. And so um, 
that's always been my mentality. Now, as you get older, you know, it kind of eases back a little bit. Trust me, I'm not on autopilot or coasting at all, but you just, you just, like I said, you get different passions, you know, you got a family, you got, you know, so, um, but I welcome young people having that attitude and, and that edge. And, um, that's why I like gravitate to some of the hardworking young dudes that I see around the United center, um, Tony Gill and, and Cody from the score and, um, have always tried to be helpful with those guys because they're doing it the right way. They're working their ass off and trying to do it the right way. Now, if you want to shortcut stuff or you want to take someone's title, but you're not willing to look them in the eye and do it, like we might talk about some people, now I got a problem with you. Now you become my chew toy, and now I got to put you in your spot. And so um, there's a way to do this that's respectful and shows your passion and then there's other ways to do it where you're just a sniper long range and I got no respect for you or no time for you. That's real. And it's funny, like listening, you talk like, I mean, you don't know this, but my entire family is from Ohio. Oh, like, okay. Like my mother is from Cleveland, you know, okay, so Maple you, Heights. you know, you I know, get it. Exactly. <laughs> I grew up. So I grew up until sixth grade. I was in Bedford. Okay. Bedford, yeah. Bedford Heights. Yeah. I got you. And my dad, uh, you know, people usually when you grew up on the east side of Cleveland, you stay on the east side of Cleveland. And there are a lot of Italians and in, in, in mm-hmm. you brought up Maple Heights, a lot yeah. of Italians. So I got uh, my godfather still lives there. Mm-hmm. And so when my dad came back and said, we're moving to the West Side Strongsville, people were like, well, you might as well be moving out of the state. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even though it was only 20 minutes away. I mean, so right. you know that mentality. And it's, oh, yeah. it's a Cleveland's a it's a unique place. It's a hardworking place where I just think the ment I mean you talk about guys that rip on each other growing up and go at each other mm-hmm. and you have to verbally become good at taking down your opponent yes. and physically it's a tough town. I, I don't care what anyone says. Cleveland's a tough city um, compared to the rest of Ohio. Ohio, the rest of Ohio is a little different. It's a little more farmy. Um, but yeah. And that, that, so you understand that mentality. It, it, mm-hmm. it instills a little toughness in you. No, it does. And like my mother, Cleveland, my father's from Middletown. Oh, okay. Um, like my sister is from Cincinnati. Like, gotcha. yeah, I, yes, I know that entire mentality. Right, right, right. My uncle used to have a store what in this town side of town. They call it the Wild West because yeah. it was always yeah. wild over there. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I know that mentality. I understand yeah. everything that you're saying. Yeah, that's yeah. how I grew yeah. up. So I completely. And then, agree. like, but even back like in the '90s when the flats were booming and that was the place to go. Yeah. It was great, but if you remember, like Charles Barkley and 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 all the Indians players. Dudes were getting in trouble down there all every weekend because that place you talk about the wild west the flats were a punch palace mm. and if if you went down the flats and you didn't end up getting in a bar fight at least once or twice a month you weren't a true clevelander that was just the mentality so i moved to chicago and i remember my boys from cleveland came up and they're like all right let's go out let's raise a little hell if we got fight we get in fight and stuff like that and we went out in lincoln park and it was way different. No, no. <laughs> I'm like, this, this ain't Cleveland anymore. No, no. <laughs> Whole other world, bro. Whole yeah, other world, so, man. So, what, what was um? Let me ask you this, because I want to know, like, have you ever written something that you were like, you know what? I shouldn't have said it that way. I wish I came at this a little bit differently. Or are you just um, like, I put it out there. That's it. I'm not going. No, it. for the most part, I'm like, you, you wrote it, you wear it. Um. Now, obviously, times have changed, and so the, the climate of what you wrote maybe 10 years ago or the language you used 10 years ago might be different and might be something where you look back now and say, I shouldn't have phrased it that way, or that was a little over the line. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, changing landscape, changing climate. Um, the one thing I will say that um, – so I wrote – I called Gar Foreman a cockroach um, <laughs> in a column, and this is the thing that stood out the most price. So then when we were in Mexico city, when the bulls were playing in Mexico city a couple of years ago, um, there was going to be a big, uh, there, there, Michael Reinsdorf, Paxson, they wanted to sit down with Gar and me mm-hmm. to, okay. And the one thing I will take out of that meeting that I promise is, you know what? It wasn't right. I'm going to, I'm going to criticize you. It probably wasn't right for me because I guess his son, his 13 year old son was upset. Now, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said, screw them. But now I have kids that are that age. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and, and so your perspective as a person, as adult changes, and it doesn't mean you soften to me, you just kind of take a different wisdom. You evolve, you, you, you acknowledge that, you know, there's feelings in this and this is, 
you know, I, I still think he's a horseshit GM and I still think he was a fraud. And I still think he did a lot of backhanded things that set this organization back years and years and years and, and put it, gave them a reputation that they're still trying to fight the way out of. Um, but I don't have to name call necessarily and stuff like that. And, and so that's probably the latest lesson that, uh, and again, look, I am, I'm a flawed human being and I'm a work in progress. And the day that you stop being a work in progress to me is the day you're six feet under in that casket. Agreed. Um, so, you know, I, and I'm not big enough. Like I said, in this profession, there's some guys I know that won't admit when they're wrong. I'm wrong all the time. I thought Trey young was going to be Jimmer for debt. You know I mean? I, I'm, you know, and, and, and that's the profession when you're going to have a strong opinion, your opinion's right. going to miss at times. Right. So, um, you know, and, and there's times I'm right. And I don't need a pat on the ass or a slap on the ass for either one. That's just the way the profession is. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you, 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 you look back and you say, because of my life experience, I probably should have handled that different, but at the time that's just who you were and, and the way you felt. Mm. So, mm. so man, dude, so obviously you were around watching when Cleveland was kind of Cleveland Cavaliers. I mean, were kind of at yeah. their height, yeah. uh, you know, Mark Price, Elo, Ron Harper, uh, who we love, we we love Ron Harper because right, right, he right. was the only one we knew know. that would that would go at Mike. Yeah, you know, if Mike yeah, had forty, yeah. Harper had thirty four. Like that's yeah. 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 I'm a big Mark Price fan. I yeah, love oh yeah, I love. Dude. See, it's funny because the dudes I play ball with up here in Minnesota, we we talk about this all the time. One of them, I don't know if you guys remember Kevin Lynch, played with the Gophers, played with Charlotte for a couple okay. of years, was drafted in the second round. He's one of the guys I play with up here. But we always talk about we do this game of NBA players that were back in the in the 80s and 90s that their game could still translate to today or even be better and the name we always talk about mark price hmm. if mark price in, played in today's game the way he could split double teams on pick and rolls oh. and the way he could shoot yes you know and then you talk oh, about but you talk about bums whose games couldn't translate to today mark jackson mark. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean dude yeah mark price know, would be a 50 40 90 dude oh, like he'd be, all he'd the time He's yeah. like another version of Steve Nash in a way, but he, less aggressive, unfortunately. Right, but, uh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, a guy I liked a lot that I don't hear talk about a lot is Terrell Brandon. I was a huge Terrell Brandon. Yeah, yeah, bro. For, oh, for yeah. a couple of years, dude, Terrell Brandon. Dude, he was like shit. smooth on the court. I was like, wow, this dude could like, but he like, he, like, he like disappeared. Yep. What happened yep. to Terrell Brandon? I, yeah. I think it was Minnesota maybe is where his last couple good years were. I don't know. And then he kind of just went off the map. I think he kind of got heavy too. I remember he kind of, he, mm. he went from Terrell Brandon looking like dinner bell, Mel Turpin real quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Hey, who's the, who's the guy that ate Terrell Brandon? No, that's Terrell Brandon. <laughs> oh, that's my guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Cause that's what we do. We, we watch Cleveland a lot. You know what I'm saying? Obviously yeah. you know, being in Chicago and like I said, our, my family being from there. And so I kind of want to know what it was like, though, being in Cleveland, just watching Mike just kind of rip their hearts out, feel their heart and their soul time after time after time. Like, what what was that like? Because we get a feel of it now. I call LeBron karma. That's how I call LeBron. He's karma. I've written that. All all the bulls were getting with Derrick Rose and a couple years after that, you're just getting what Cleveland got from Michael Jordan. Correct. (laughs) You were that cusp team, that team that was supposed to be the team of the 90s like the Mm -hmm. Cavs were. But you couldn't get over that that monster. Yeah. You couldn't slay that monster. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I was a huge Jordan fan back in when I even when I was in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one thing about me, probably the only Cleveland team I really had a a, a thing for was the Indians because mm-hmm. my dad was a huge Indians guy, and so there was that thing. So I, I really did like the Indians, but. I quickly, at the age of four, I became a huge Steelers fan because my uncle used to be a Cleveland mm-hmm. cop, and you know they used to bring all those cops to Old Municipal Stadium for the weekend games. Mm-hmm. People don't, people don't rem- people don't understand how violent and volatile those Brown Steelers games were back in the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties. There were we would sit, he would sit us on the field. We would see dudes with like containers of lighter fluid squirting it on each other and throwing matches at each other. Mm. Cups of urine because the old dog pound used to it used to not be the dog pound. It's where they put half the visiting uh, fans. So it was divided in half. They used to have to line up cops all the way down the aisles. And so at the age of four, I went to a Brown Steelers game. You know, my mom 
put a Browns coat on me and my brother, my older brother and one of his buddies. And we were supposed to go in the Browns locker room after and the Steelers beat him. They closed the locker room down. And my uncle's like, yeah, hey, I get you in the Steelers locker room. And when you're four or five years old, that team spit on me and said, no, this team embraced me. Mm-hmm. I was sold. That was it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Good people always ask me how I'm a big Steelers fan growing up in Cleveland. Right. That was it. So, um, and then later on in high school, it was funny. And at Strongsville, uh, Bill Cowers, uh, wife who passed away was my health teacher because he was an assistant coach there. Yeah. Marty Schottenheimer's both his, his daughter and his son, who's a, a coach now, uh, went to Strongsville with me. Um, Dave Logan lived in my neighborhood, the old Browns receiver. So mm-hmm. um, it was funny that we moved to this Strongsville was this cradle of Browns uh, players, coaches and personnel. And you, you got me, this this rebel wearing Steelers jerseys on Friday. So. Dude, you're right about those Indians teams, though, man, because those are some of my – even though I'm oh. a huge White Sox fan, man, when y'all had Kenny Lofton and, oh. and Sandy Alomar, Roberto Alomar Jr., man, and, you know, Jim Tomey and Albert Bell, you know, man, y'all had a whip. And I, and I still get mad that we didn't get to see that kind of race in 94 during that right, strike Right, 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 because that was – yeah, that was going to be something special. Yeah. Man, because yeah. the White Sox had a special team. But Cleveland, y'all you – know, right there. I think we were – They were on the come-up. They were yeah. on the come-up, yep. And, right and, the thing, and the thing that was interesting, which I always reflect back on, is what I really liked about Cleveland is that, that that organization did it the right way. They were moving into the new stadium, and before they moved into the new stadium – they signed all those cats, the big contracts, yes. telling the fan base that, hey, come and sell this thing out. We're giving you the product first. And that's why I've had a lot of problems with teams, like especially up here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. They moved into that new stadium and they flat out lied and said they were going to sign dudes long term and spend money and be the Yankees of the division. And that was just a lie. And, and so I always call out teams that that because I grew up, I was in Cleveland when they made that promise to the fans and they backed it up. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. that's real Joe what was your first like day like I'm wondering like when you got hired by the Sun Times when you got to Mount Everest like what was that like for you man like can you want me to like kind of the nerves or were you like no I'm coming in to take everything like what was that kind of like for you yeah no I, I didn't have any nerves I mean you know I felt like I had done some good work at the South Town um, I felt like I had done I was really in tune with the White Sox at the time um, felt like I was a guy in the know that broke a lot of stuff with the White Sox, even when I was at the South Town. Um, yeah, it was great. And then I, then when you're there, I wanted more and, and wanted to become a columnist. And I got to do that for two years when uh, Mariotti um, was shown stage left and Greg Couch went with him. And mm-hmm. so I got to do that column for a couple of years. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't have asked. The Sun Times is has been such a perfect paper for me, hmm. um, and have stood by me and have um, allowed me to stumble and get back up. Mm-hmm. And um, I couldn't have asked for a, a better situation, a better newspaper, better bosses, um, better teammates. Um, you know, it, it's just been it's just, it's really just been perfect. It's been a perfect. Uh, I could retire from the Sun Times and be very happy. Wow. That's awesome, man. What have you ever? Well, that I don't. You don't have to name names, but I name names. You, I don't give a shit. I want to know: Have you ever gotten uh, feedback or like negative feedback from like an athlete, a front office person, something like that for oh, something that you wrote? Is there a story you can give me on that? Ah, <laughs> uh, so all right, I'm covering the White Sox, and I get the stories. So a couple guys pull me over. They're like, "Hey, man, Orlando Cabrera." Last guy into the locker room, first guy out. And when he committed an error, he called up. Because a lot of these guys will have Greg Walker at the time call up and say, hey, talk to Rosie, see if he could overturn that. Yeah. You know, but they never have it. They, they, they want it just changed. Orlando Cabrera called up. He wanted his error taken off and put on Toby Hall, his teammate. <laughs> oh. Because he was just a one-year deal. And his whole thing was, I'm, I'm not – the, you know, my glove is my, my ticket to free agency. He was that guy that still was, thought he was the shortstop that would be paid for his glove. So a couple of guys called me over and I'll name names. Now Jermaine Dye was one of them because Jermaine, I'll tell you what, Jermaine and I, we had a great relationship, but Jermaine loved to be that snipe and then stir <laughs> it up and then sit back. Like ah, who the hell told him that? <laughs> and so Jermaine called me over and he's like, Hey man, 
this is what's going on. And Konerko was right next to him. Konerko was just nodding his head. I'm like, all right, let's, let's, let's bide our time. Let's, you know, mm-hmm. wait for the right situation. Another error. He did it again, called mm-hmm. during the game himself to get a, an error overturned. And I'm like, all right, it's time now. So I wrote this whole column, how Orlando Cabrera's house has no mirrors, um, broke the story out. He was not only trying to re, you know, get errors off of him, but put them on teammates. Mm-hmm. You know, Toby Hall is just trying to, you know, be that second catcher and, and, and kick it. You it's know? Toby Hall. Yeah. 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 And this dude's put trying to put a black eye on his own teammate. It's like, so um, I wrote that story. We go to Cleveland and I knew it was coming because I just knew Orlando Cabrera's makeup and just what he was about. And so I'm talking to Jermaine of all people. And also Jermaine, like he like looks behind me, goes, here it comes. And so all of a sudden I turn and Cabrera, he was, you know, I'm not a big dude, but Cabrera was, you know, we're eye to eye. Mm-hmm. And he's like, is that all you got Poppy? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, is that all you got? I go, Oh no, I got more. And so we just start going at each other. Um, Brian Anderson runs yeah. into the training room because a couple the white Sox PR guys were in there and they're like, you better get out here. Cause these dudes are face to face. And we're like, like bumping foreheads, like, no, I got more. And I was like, that's why you can't go back to Columbia because they'll kill you. Nobody likes you. <laughs> Nobody likes you in this clubhouse. And he's right. like, that's he's like, that's right, Poppy. I'm going to be he, – what do he say? I'm going to be out of here. He said something stupid like, that's why I'm going to be out of here in a year. I go, you just summed up your whole career. Nobody mm-hmm. wants you for more than a year. I go, you're a World, World Series shortstop who nobody wants. <laughs> and so – um, and that's just I, – I mean, I got into it. Him, I've got into it with – Kenny Williams came to a game just to bump me in the lot. He and I didn't talk for like two years. I mean, you know, Cooper lawsuit threats from him, um, a lot, a lawsuit threat from Jim Boylan. Um, I I mean, I could go. Yeah. I've had, I couldn't even count all the the runs I've had. Hold on. You got a lawsuit threat from, I don't even like saying his name from the previous coach. of the Yep. Wow. Yep. Wow. What was so, the what was that like covering those press conferences with him, eight for eighty two games? Because you know one of the boys outside, yeah, 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 too. But I mean, look, I tried. I was hard on Jim when he was assistant coach because I knew he was backstabbing Fred. Yeah. I knew it, and I remember one time I had coffee with Fred. We were in uh, Memphis, and I told Fred, you know, here is what you got to know about Fred Hoiberg. Generally, one of the nicest human beings. Just a just. Not not Opie naive, right? But just a super nice dude. Yeah. And I saw what Jim was doing, and I knew Jim's track record, so I was hard on Jim. I would I was writing stuff that you know Jim's one of those guys that might go on a golf outing with you and the rest of the coaching staff, but then going behind the back. And I have a big problem with that. I, that's why I had such a big problem with Don Cooper, what he did to that, that Bulls or to that White Sox coaching room mm. and how he betrayed them and how that's why Ozzy called him Judas because he was a Judas. Mm. And so um, I have problems with that. And to me, coaches are the most disposable, unfair piece for an organization. They're mm. the scapegoats. And that's the profession. They all know that. But it's so easy to blame them why they are working their ass off tirelessly. So I always kind of have uh, uh, a relationship and a place in my heart for coaches and managers. Because mm-hmm. I understand that they are the scapegoat. They're the ones that are going to be lied to the most. They also know where the most bodies are buried. And so to have a relationship with them is important. But I remember I told Fred, I'm like, I'm telling you, this guy is going to backstab you. He's, he's, he's working – every angle to try to get your job. And Fred was like, no, he got my son at Michigan state and helped with that. And, and I'm like, Fred, I'm just telling you. And I remember after Fred got fired a couple months later, you know, we didn't talk for a while. A couple months later, he called me up. He goes, he goes, biggest mistake was I, I was, I should have listened, but I was, I came from a place where, especially when he was in Minnesota playing for the Timberwolves with Kevin Garnett and guys like that, mm-hmm. that group, that coaching staff, that locker room, they govern themselves like men. They didn't spit fire behind each other's backs and they all tried to pick each other up. And that was his mentality. 
And so he thought when he went from college to the pros and coaching the bulls, that that same mentality was, was everywhere. And it wasn't. Mm. So you, you, not only were you coming to a dysfunctional front office, one that allows shit like that to happen. It has a history of allowing that to happen. Mm-hmm. You brought a Fox into the hen house and Jim Boylan. And so, um, but Okay, I let bygones be bygones. I said, okay, I don't like the way he got this job, but I'm going to give him a chance. Mm -hmm. And I tried to give him a chance, but then it becomes to such a point where you, I can no longer tie myself to you because you're not good at this. Mm. You know, I've given you the chance to become good at it. You talked a good game. You know, we Casey Johnson and I went to a couple early dinners with Jim Boylan where I think he wanted to, smooth over because Casey knew this too. He knew that Fred was backstabbed. I mean, we, we, all the beat writers did Vince Goodwill, mm-hmm. all of us did. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you still got to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Okay. You still have to say, okay, I don't like the way you got to this position, but you're here now. So now prove me wrong. Prove me. You earned this. And he never did that. So um, I knew the writing was on the wall. Pretty, mm-hmm. pretty, probably midway through that season that, you know, forget the X's and O's that I I didn't think he was very good at, but the player relationships, the rolling of eyes, the way he was losing guys, you knew this was headed for a bad place where you either had to change the entire personnel or you had to just change Jim Boylan. And and, um, um, I was shocked that he was able to fool as many people, his bosses, as long as he was. Well, let me ask you this. Um, so how much did all that affect the players, though? Because I was, as a fan, I'm not a new writer. I wonder, like, do the players know how this is going on? No, yeah, Are yeah. Aware of this? Yeah, here's, here's how things affect the players. And this is, you know, and, and when I do write, when I write and people think I'm critical of a team, I'm not. I'm, my job is to show you why things are going shitty. And behind the scenes, as much as I can, there's a lot of stuff we can't write. Mm-hmm. There's just There just is. Because of, it's either sourced to a person that it will all come back onto and everyone will know it. And then that person loses his job or, you know, they're that, that the, the subject matter is so sensitive that there's, there's bigger things. There's more collateral damage than you feel comfortable with destroying, whether it's family members, kids, there's just more to it. And so, um, but what, what, what you can do is point out the stuff that you feel comfortable doing and saying, this is why it's going wrong. But the, the thing, when you talk about the effect it has on players, here's what it does to an NBA locker room. It makes – it's different in baseball, I think. But in an NBA locker room where there's less guys, there's fewer guys that are more important, or there, there's, there's a few guys that are just very important compared to baseball where it's multiple guys that are important. Right. Um, you have a guy say, it's no longer about me being in that foxhole with you. It's about my brand and it's about me getting mine. Mm. And then you're playing the game the wrong way. And that's what I saw last year happening is you got a bunch of guys, you have a bunch of individual guys that are playing individual game because they no longer believe in the coach, but more importantly, they're no longer willing to fight for that coach and him staying there and, and listening to him and doing things the right way. Now you're just trying to forward your brand, your, your points, your number, your numbers, and to hell with teammates. You know, I still love my teammates, but I got to get mine. And to hell with that coaching staff. And then you're playing the game the wrong way. You got no chance then. You're done. What was the breaking point for you for the last coach? Like, where you were just like, you know what? This dude's an idiot. He can't do it. Was there, What was the breaking point? Um, I knew he couldn't do it probably, I think, probably about a month into the season – I knew he couldn't do it with that personnel because they had lost faith in him. Yeah. They gave look, they they all came into that training camp with the mindset, which I can give him credit for, because to erase what that half a year of Boylan was like mm-hmm. and to come into that training camp and say, All right, let's just sketch this crap out. We're gonna start from zero. We're gonna give you the benefit of the doubt. And I think they actually all bought in and said, Let's do that. Let's play the game the right way. And I think Jim even tried to cater to certain guys. Hey, this is how we're going to play, blah, blah, blah. But I would say probably a couple, probably about two months in, and I think the first piece to break was Lowry, where Lowry was just like, this dude doesn't know how to use me. Basically, I'm just a seven-foot decoy, 
And he checked out and he shouldn't have because he became kind of mopey and it affected the way he played. We all saw that. And I still think him checking out like that, I still think has affected him to this day where it's easier for him to tap out of a game if things aren't going his way. Yeah, I think he loves Billy Donovan. I think he believes in Billy Donovan, but you've been taught a bad habit and it's hard to break that habit when you don't have the right coach and the right support system to teach young guys, the right habits. It's easier for them to go back to a bad habit. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's still nights where I see Lowry and I'm like, dude, you you look like Lowry who was pissed about Jim Boylan at at times. You can't be that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a disservice to you. And it's more importantly, it's a disservice to Billy Donovan and the job he's trying to do. Is he the worst coach you've ever seen that you've ever covered, I should say? Manager, baseball, I mean, every sport. I mean, I got lucky with my baseball. I heard he was Terry Bevington, and I didn't get Bevington. So I came in the first year of Jerry Manuel. And to me, Jerry Manuel was highly, highly underrated because of his kindness. His kindness was mistaken for weakness. Mm. But when you talk baseball with him, I mean, look, he took a shitty 2000 team to the playoffs. Right. Yeah. And Kenny Williams came in the next year. Kenny was the one that messed that up. It wouldn't, mm. wouldn't, wouldn't Jerry Manuel. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, so I miss Terry Bevington, but the stories I heard about Bevington and the effect he had on guys that were still carrying that weight under Jerry Manuel. And like I said, the bad habits that a, a bad coach or bad manager can create long-term, the damage they can do. I definitely saw that um in 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 Boylan that that there was a Terry Bevington element to him where mm-hmm. yeah Terry Bevington was considered a good assistant like Jim was probably considered a good assistant in San Antonio mm-hmm. but <laughs> in San Antonio yeah in San Antonio right Houston <laughs> but, too yeah yeah but once this guy has to have the lights on him your true self comes out. You can't Correct. hide as an assistant you could hide you could play the game you can make yourself kind of look good in some ways um when you're that head guy, you're exposed and that kind of judges you as a man and, and, and your real self comes out and he shrank big yeah. time. No, you're right. It's like my dad used to always tell me that it's, it's different when it's on you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. that's, when you, that's when you get exposed, like you said. Yeah. And it yeah. comes to light. It comes to fruition like that. Man. Right, right. Oh, um, what was what's about this last regime that, that have what was your did you have a favorite moment? Because I know all the negative moments that existed. Was that a favorite moment though for you that you were like, I'd love that I was able to cover this. I, I loved the relationship I was able to build with Tom uh, Thibodeau because he's not a guy that lets a lot of media people in. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love the relationship I was able to build with Jimmy Butler. I mean, everyone knows Jimmy's my guy to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, um, favorite moment. I'll tell you what, I was a columnist at the time, but the, 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 best feeling I had about Chicago basketball, because I came in at the end of the Jordan thing. I was doing the white Sox, I wasn't around it. And that was unbelievable. But that Miami heat, the first year of the Heatles and Derek Rose's MVP seeing them clash. And I, Jason Goff and I, I think are the only two in the city that picked the heat to win that series. No, no, oh, oh, no, no, no. Uh, okay. Oh, right here, bro. There's three of us. Right here. Four right of us. Here. Four. Um, no, right there, were here. A lot of, there were a lot of people drinking. Then you remember, there were a lot of people that were oh, drinking the Kool-Aid. A lot. And we get angry. Yes, because yes. I just knew as good as that looked when they played the heat and beat their ass every time in the regular season, mm-hmm. that six, eight, six, nine King yes. is going to put that crown on in that fourth quarter yes. and say, Hey, Simeon guy, right? You got to go through Akron now because yes. I'm going to go on you in the fourth quarters of games. And Big Bank took Little Bank, and mm. that was just going to happen. And so, um, but the intensity of that series and that run and the way the city just was just on fire for those couple of weeks, that whole playoff run, my Bulls experience, my best Bulls experience was definitely probably that. Mm. Um, since then, there's just been a lot of shit and a lot of dumpster <laughs> fires yeah, yeah um and then obviously the baseball covering ozzy that world series team everyone knows my feelings about juan uribe the greatest player in white Sox history i don't care what mm. anyone says mm. um mm. uh you know and and the, the juan stories are legendary and just um just that whole group i don't think people understood just how great that group was how different they all were how they came together how they loved each other how they fought for each other how they went in that foxhole and were willing to, to do whatever it took for each other um, to get that World Series. 
And that World Series team has never been respected like it should be because yes. they were as nasty a group as as I mean they assassinated all their opponents in that playoff run. Assassinated. Yeah. No, no. So, yeah. So the fact that 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 ESPN has forgotten that 2005 team yes. at times. Yeah. Um, you know, but that that playoff that World Series run is my most memorable moment covering a Chicago sports team, obviously. Um, you know, look, I'm not, I, I didn't grow up in Chicago, right? but you learn to like those guys. You know, I never thought I would hit it off with AJ like I did. And then, you know, mm-hmm. a couple years later, um, he's doing the video with me where I tried stealing bases off of them. And, <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, it, it was just a great crew. I still talk to some of those guys. I still talk to some of the guys that came before that your Sirodkas, your parquets, mm-hmm. uh, I'm good friends with Jimmy and, and his family. And, um, yeah, it, that that was uh that was a special time that 05 White Sox team. Yeah, Joe, I was working there. I was I took a job in the commissary. Okay. And, you know, if I, and you know, and so I got to see just cuz you know, I was a huge fan and I got to go to every single game, all the playoff games, you know what I'm saying, the World Series game. So it, it I saw was, all that. Like I was yeah. in the stadium and you and I'm sure you can attest to this when Conurco hit that grand slam, it was like an earthquake. Like the whole stadium shook, man. I never felt was, anything like yeah, I mean, you know, covering the Big Ten back in the day was great. You know, some of the Ohio State-Penn State games, the Ohio State-Notre Dame game of the century, the first time they played in like 90-some years. I mean, those are memorable things. I got to – when I was a columnist, I got to go to Alabama, LSU, when they met later in the national championship game with the first game in Tuscaloosa. This is an time sent me down there. Mm-hmm. Those are games you remember as far as that thunder moment where it's just – shaking and you can't believe that human beings are doing this yes, yes, yes. and and yeah that white Sox world series and some of those moments were just like damn you i know i'm a sports writer i know i'm supposed to be professional this isn't even my team but damn <laughs> this is beautiful you know so that's so joe so what i like about this conversation is that you mentioned that you want to write and everything but what i'm hearing is that what's key in your career is the relationships you've built throughout years did, did you expect yeah. that coming in when you're young guys around? Did, did you think like I would have these special relationships with our owners and players? I, I always thought I and I always built relationships. Like like I said, even when I was covering all those high school guys, I remember um, you know, Damon Stringer, all those guys. One of the coaches, they're like, Hey, we're taking a team out to Vegas. See if the see a lot of these guys like you. See if Sun newspapers will send you to Vegas for this this all-star tournament. I talked to some newspapers. They're like, yeah. So I actually went and was like another chaperone to all these guys, Jerome Taylor and stuff. And, and, and followed them throughout their college. I still talk to, you know, Posey. And when I see him, I'm like, Pose, remember Vegas. And he's like, Oh man. Cause you know, they were all high school kids at the time. So I knew I was always good at building relationships. Um, and that's what this business is building relationships. I, here's what I equate it to. And no disrespect to the beat writers I had when I was covering the White Sox. Casey Johnson is one of my favorite guys to cover a beat with. Mm-hmm. He's this professional, dot the I's, cross the T's as it comes. Mm-hmm. He and I, when you look at the two of us, the way we talk, the way we act, we would seem different. But actually, on the road, he and I have – it's scary. It's almost like he's my older brother. Not, not that much older, but older brother because of our same travel habits – the way we kind of conduct ourselves, the way we handle stuff on the road. Now, obviously, our personalities are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've always liked about him is the way he builds relationships and the way he does things. And it's funny because someone the, last year said players go to him or front office people are going to go to him when they want one type of story written. And I'm like the guy, I'm like Saul from Better Call Saul. I'm at the dumpster and guys are going to walk out behind the alley and go, Cowley, come here, because they want this kind of story written. Right. And so um, I think on the White Sox, I learned that guys are going to approach different guys depending on how they want this thing written. And when I went to the Bulls, it became even more. And there's no question that people understand. Case, he was on one side of the Derrick Rose Joe Keem, I was on the other side with Pau Gasol and Jimmy Butler. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that I hated Derek. And this is one thing that you, we brought up regret. I didn't cover Derek when Derek was Derek. People have to understand that. The Derek I got was the guy that had blown out his knee 
was having a bunch of people fill his head, brand, team, minutes, Tibbs is trying to hurt you, Tibbs is trying to hurt Joe, don't listen to him. So I got that guy. And so I didn't get kid from Simeon, hometown kid make good. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have, because maybe Derek and I would have had a different relationship, a better relationship. But that, that you brought up the relationship building. Sometimes when you get into a guy's life is the relationship. Mm. And unfortunately, when I got into, Der- into Derek's life, he wasn't the same kid that your, you know, your, your KCs and guys like that. Sam Smith got to know. So I, I learned that I, I grew up, I learned a different Derek and it wasn't a Derek that I felt was, was, it was no longer in that foxhole the way he used to be. So our relationship was different, but I'll say this about, about, about Derek and, and Eugene from the bigs. And I have talked about this. I knew Derek didn't like me. I knew Derek at times probably couldn't stand me, but I would ask a question. He wouldn't look me in the eyes, but he would answer. It. And that's what I'll always take away from our relationship is this dude could have been like next question. Cause there's been dudes, Kenny Williams. And you know, people think you have to have a guy. And for them, there are some guys you have to, he has to be able to talk to you. If he doesn't, then it's tough. Hmm. But there's a lot of guys I cut free, and I'm like, I don't need to talk to the pitching coach. F you, mm-hmm. Don Cooper. I don't need to talk to Kenny Williams. F you, Kenny Williams. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to talk to you anymore, Gar Foreman. Go. And so that's probably not the right way to do this job, but I don't want to be that guy. There's too many guys in the profession that kiss everyone's ass because they want to make sure they can still talk to that guy. Then mm-hmm. you're not covering the team the way you should be covering it. If everybody likes you, you're not doing your job. Mm. Mm. That's a good point. Is there has there ever been a player or front office person that you covered that you might have had like a preconceived notion about, but kind of surprised you once you kind of got yeah, into them? Tons, tons, tons. I mean, I mentioned AJ Prezinski. I thought I was getting this spoiled only. You know, he's an only child. I knew that about him, and he acts like he's the poster boy for only child. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought I was getting this irritant. Dennis the Menace, spoiled Minnesota guy, and I was going to hate him. I was going to clash with him. Then you get to realize that AJ, people don't realize, AJ's SATs were off the charts. AJ has a photographic memory. Mm. So AJ doesn't have to go and listen to Don Cooper tell you the pitch sequence he wants while he's eating a ham sandwich and spitting food all over because AJ remembers how he pitched that guy the last 18 times he faced him, he can tell you, he can recite you pitch sequences from years prior on certain guys. It's scary. So he was highly misunderstood. I misunderstood him. And once I got to know him, but yeah, there's lots of guys like that. I, I didn't like Joakim Noah at Florida. I just didn't like him. There's something about him. I didn't like him. Then you get to know what he's about. When they got Mike Dunleavy, I was like, Oh shit, we got a dookie. I hate dookies. Mm-hmm. A silver spoon, white kid who went to Duke, who probably can't relate to how I grew up or how a lot of people grew up. I'm going to hate the dude. Couldn't be further from the truth. The coolest, the most down to earth, love Dunleavy, big surprise. I mean, there are numerous guys that that um, you have a notion of in your head because the fan kind of sees it that way. Mm-hmm. But then when you get to meet them, and talk to him and find out what he's about and, and, and just, and just BS with him. That's the one thing we get baseball. You had a lot more time to BS with guys. Mm-hmm. It's the NBA is way different as yeah. far as the, the available. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As far as the availability, the time we have. Um, so you don't get to know guys as well as you do in baseball. Um, but still, when you're just BSing with guys and get to find out the essence of what they're about, uh, it's kind of cool, especially when you brought it, you, as you brought up, you did. You thought they were one way, and they're not. Right. They're they're a dog, and you like them. And right. you thought they were a different kind of dog. Mm. You know, D O G dog. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. That's interesting because, like, I, you talk to a lot of athletes, and so in your head, like, what makes a good athlete a good pro? Like, you I, see, well, yeah, yeah. He doesn't have. I don't. He doesn't have to be good to the media. Okay, it's his advantage to be. It's, you know, a lot of guys like. Uh, you know, Teddy Greenstein and I had this debate. He hated Albert Bell because Albert initially treated the media poorly. He didn't treat me poorly because I would just go up to him instead of going the, pro- you know, Albert wanted us 
you couldn't go talk to him directly. You had to go through PR and say, is Elbert talking? But to me, it got to the point of, I would just go up to Elbert and be like, Elbert, you're going to be a baby today and not talk. Are you talking? And I think he liked that about me because I didn't give a shit. I don't, I didn't have any fear of Elbert Bell. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but you have too many media members that want to penalize a guy because he wasn't good to them. Whether mm. it's the Hall of Fame voting and stuff yep. like that. I always had a big issue with that. Barry Bonds was horrible to the media. I've put him on my, my Hall of Fame ballot every year without question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I don't hold grudges like that. You don't have to like us. Now, it's always – I never understood why athletes take that approach because it's always – we're human beings. To be nice to the media and have us on your side for if, in case you slip up or the career starts going the other way – we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt in most cases mm-hmm. more than we would a guy who slips up and was addicted to the media. Then we're going to jump right on him. So I always thought it would be, it, it's in the athlete's best interest to make sure that the media has an understanding of you and you respect each other because it could benefit you down the road. Mm-hmm. But you know, that doesn't make you a good athlete. To me, what, what makes you a good athlete is, and is, people could call it caveman, Neanderthal, whatever, is your teammates and your coaching staff says, I know we're playing a sport, but if we ever had to go to war, I want this dude in the foxhole with me. Hmm. I don't give a shit if he was a 220 hitter. I want this dude. Miguel Olivo, Hmm. here's why I love Miguel Olivo. The toughest, probably the toughest White Sox physically, scary tough. I mean, this dude was passing stones between innings of a game, people forget that when he was in Seattle or wherever he was, he was passing kidney stones. If anyone's had kidney stones, that's like the male pregnancy. That's as close as we get. (laughs) And he was passing stones between innings. And you had, when he was a white sock to a man, I want this guy in the foxhole with me. Tough, tough guy. That to me, that's where it starts. The talent, all that other stuff is important, Mm -hmm. but I want that guy that, because at some point, Things are going to get hard. Things are going to get tough. And, and, and the team that's going to win that championship and rise to that spot, you have to have enough, enough guys in that foxhole that are willing to fight, not die. That's too extravagant. No one's right. dying out there. Right. But it's a saying, die for your teammates. Put it out there and understand that the importance of the whole is bigger than the importance of the individual. Mm. To me, those are your best athletes. you got enough of those guys. The talent obviously helps. You're going to need that talent at some point, especially in the NBA where talent is supreme. Mm-hmm. But at some point, if you have that guy, you put a couple of those guys on the team, whether it's a football team or, or a baseball team, um, I'll take my chances. I'll take my chances with a guy who's going to be that. Dude, so. dude. What's, a, what's a preconceived notion about you that people get wrong? Oh, well, yeah, it's funny because, you know, like um, I think there's a I, – I think there's – and, and maybe it's my fault, but, you know, I think a lot of people um, until they meet me and actually talk to me, don't think I'm approachable. I've always been, especially with young writers and stuff. Somebody comes up to me and asks me a question. I'm going to be real with them and steer them the wrong way mm-hmm. um, at the same time. And I think this is probably have, have been my fault. I don't, I, 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 especially when I was younger, I had a temper. I still kind of have a temper, but I always felt like there's a way to do things. A couple of years ago, Nate Duncan, the blogger, put a tweet out about me. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. I'm not going to tweet back at you, though, because I know I'm going to see you. Mm. And so I waited, and we went to Summer League. And Nate's a big dude. Nate's 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. There was a chance Nate could probably beat my ass. I'd have tried to take his eye and make him wear a patch the rest of his life, but he could have probably beat my ass. But yeah. still, I'm going to approach you like a man and say – didn't like it. Don't do it again. And so I think I've, I've had my run-ins with people and maybe, you know, the, the news media toxic it's. And so I think people have that perception that I might not be easy to get along with or that I'm confrontational, but I'm confrontational when I feel like you don't do things the right way or you came at me the wrong way because now you're disrespecting me. You're disrespecting what I'm trying to do. And so I'm going to talk to you about it and question you about it. I've had my run-ins with many media members, yeah, many athletes, many people in front offices, but I'm going to speak my mind, and that, right. that's just you know the way it is. So that's how it should be, though. Be honest with people, straight up. Let yeah, it fall and, where and, it may. 
and everyone wants to say, well, that's old school or boomer mentality. No, no. that's just, you, you know, you, I'm trying to, I have two boys that I'm trying to raise to be men. Mm-hmm. And you just hope that they handle their business that same way. Mm. That's all you can ask for. That's all you can ask for.